Why You'll Never Be a Rapper, a memoir mixtape by Josh What's-His-Name Lefkowitz, forward by Fonte Coleman. Chapter 25 Throughout the bullshit, the misery, and occasional turmoil, Rue and I still had our friendship. We confided in each other, and in the grand scheme of things, we were all we had. One night, we decided to be nostalgic and pick up a couple of 40s of Colt 45 at a local bodega on Empire Boulevard. As we tried our best to drown our sorrows in premium malt liquor, we began to speak about women and dating, something I hadn't had a lot to say about in quite some time. You know what this shit is, I told Rue through a drunken slur. I don't even like anyone I've met in the past three years. <laughs> For real? He replied while laughing. Yeah, I mean, I don't even have anybody I would invite to go grab some dinner. I miss that, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I feel you. His face became more serious. I don't need to fall in love, but I would love to have a cool chick that I could at least go grab some dinner or a drink with. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't even have that. He understood. I decided that I was going to go downstairs and post an ad in the dating section of Craigslist. I described my perfect woman, and if nobody responded, then at least the words would be in the atmosphere. Ruth thought it was a great idea, so I jumped up and nearly fell over a wooden fold-out tray that sat to the right of his couch. I carefully made my way downstairs to my apartment, barely able to feel my feet touching the steps. If you were wondering, 80 ounces of malt liquor is a lot. When I arrived home, I sat down on my rickety wooden computer desk, logged onto Craigslist, and started pouring my drunken soul out onto the screen. I titled it, You Probably Don't Exist, But You're Probably Saying the Same Thing About Me. I began the rant, if the following describes your personality, you should email me immediately because you're probably my soulmate. I knew it was extreme, but I also thought it was funny and attention-grabbing. Do you dress like a snob, but deep down you're sort of artsy? Do you have any tattoos? Do you listen to hip-hop? Are you very into music? Do you wear jeans with heels when you go out? Do you wear MAC eyeshadow? The list went on for an entire page as I described to a T what I envisioned my female counterpart to look, think, and act like. Nobody's even going to read this shit, I thought to myself, but it made me write more. I didn't think this was earth-shifting stuff, but it felt good to get it out. And once the list was complete, I hit post. No weird loving sentiments. No pictures of me flexing my muscles while sucking in my gut. Just words. The only thing I knew I was still good at. The whole thing took me 20 minutes tops, and afterwards, I got up, grabbed what was left of my warm, backwash-filled 40, and went back to Ruth's. The next morning, I woke up with a slight headache and went to the computer just to make sure there were no responses to my online rant. I was surprised to see that there were two. One that was spam, and one that sounded sort of promising but also gave off a bit of a bitchy vibe. I exchanged an email or two with her for fun, but my instinct was correct. She was kind of a bitch. I decided that the rant was just that and discontinued my dialogue with her. Two nights later, I came home from work and noticed an email with a subject line full of exclamation points. The response was from a woman who seemed genuine, or at least as genuine as I could detect from an email. The more I read, the more it seemed that perhaps she really was the girl I described in my rant, and more importantly, that she found me accidentally. I was intrigued. Her name was Monica. She had created a fake email account to reply to me, so initially I didn't know her real last name, which may have told me more. She hoped that if I intended to murder her in a dark alley that I'd never be able to find her again. As it turned out, she didn't even know Craigslist had a dating section. And after a few too many glasses of wine with her best friend Anna, she logged on and giggled at the desperation of New York City's most eligible bachelors. 
After she typed the words hip-hop in the search bar, my rant came up and she read it with her best friend in silence. He's looking for you, Anna insisted. She laughed hysterically until Anna convinced her that it was her destiny and that she needed to respond. We exchanged a series of emails for about a week and then went out on a very successful first date on October 27, 2006. She was born to a Puerto Rican mother and a Maltese father in Brooklyn where she lived until she was 14. After her parents divorced and her mom got remarried to a Jew, she moved to Long Island where she would spend the remainder of her high school and college years. Like me, she was obsessed with music, and though her taste was far more eclectic and diverse than mine, she regarded hip-hop as one of her favorites. She checked off all the boxes from my list. She was gorgeous, stylish, cool, independent, had a good job, came from a loving family, had no kids, was genuine and confident. I could tell she was attracted to me by the way she shook her head slowly when I'd look away to take a sip of my liquid confidence. She didn't know that I could see her, but I could. Our childhoods were completely different, as were our social circles and life experiences. But from the first 20 seconds of her email, I knew that she was different than anyone I had ever dated and that she was special, almost not of this earth. Though my gut was telling me that this could be something amazing, I chose not to overthink it. Focus on music, I'd remind myself, knowing that I didn't want to. A few days after our second date, I was at work talking with a coworker named Jimmy. You know who you should meet? He asked me. Who, Puff Daddy? I said sarcastically. No, my buddy James. Why, what's he do? I replied while paying him only a fraction of my attention and never taking my eyes off my computer screen. He does some recording and producing. I know he just worked with Ludacris and some other rappers. Seriously? I said. Yeah, man, he seems to be doing some big stuff. Look him up. So I did, and I learned that this James was a child violin prodigy that had trained with the best of the best. As a teenager, he had played with the New York Philharmonic, then studied at NYU where he went on to receive his master's in music. He was born into money which afforded him the ability to not have to work a regular job and build a state-of-the-art recording studio in his duplex in Gramercy. With an exquisite musical ear and background, he recorded, mixed, and mastered his way into the music industry and signed young producers to do a bulk of the musical manual labor. This extended his reach. His credits were impressive. He had been involved in lots of projects and had personal relationships with many of the largest artists, most powerful A&Rs, and major label honchos that respected his opinion. I knew that Jimmy believed in what Rue and I were doing just from my stories and the quality of the video we shot. I also knew that he was a nice guy with no emotional investment into my music and that a connection from him would only be out of the goodness of his heart. It seemed like a good enough idea, so I was game. I'm a bouncer at a pool hall on 4th Ave and 11th Street a few days a week. You should come down Monday night. James is in a pool league there and you'll be able to sit down and talk with him. Though I almost couldn't get excited about yet another connection that was going to take work and mental massaging to benefit me, I tried my hardest to get into the spirit. I told Rue about James and he too thought it would be a great idea to get to know him or at least attempt to. We cleared our busy TV watching and drinking schedules in preparation for Monday night and I put together an iPod playlist of my best work to date. Each song sat in a specific order, one right after the other, highlighting certain aspects of my various songwriting and music making abilities. In my mind, the playlist would take the right listener on a journey. If there was ever a collection of songs in my tenure as an unsigned recording artist that I'd want someone to hear, this was it. Even if deep down I didn't believe this meeting would amount to anything. I planned my outfit to make me appear as nonchalantly star-like as possible. I didn't know if I could accomplish that, but the amount of thought I put into the planning for that Monday evening was a moderate. 
Once we arrived, we sat by the bar nonchalantly and pretended that we were just there by chance. You know, to grab a couple of brews. Once the game was over, Jimmy called James over and introduced me. James was polite and present, and after a bit of a conversation, he seemed genuinely interested in hearing my music. I took another sip of my Heineken and walked outside into the chilly fall weather to let him hear my playlist. James lit up a cigarette while I worked the second-generation iPod wheel furiously without appearing nervous. Mostly I wasn't. Almost instantaneously, James began nodding his nerdy Caucasian head back and forth, doing his best to appear somewhat of the culture. I could hear every song a bit as it played, and I was able to watch James react to all of my specific metaphors. He moved his hand almost like a conductor, following my cadences while my words danced over the beat. He'd even repeat some of my slickest lines back to me verbatim, and follow them with, That's great. I didn't overthink it, but I could tell he got it, and I was pleased. Once we were done, James and I went back to the bar so we could talk, with Rue and Jimmy in tow. You know what, man? Lyrically, I would say you're one of the best I've ever heard. Wow, thanks, man, I said humbly, though I believed him. No, seriously, your lyrics and your cadences are magnificent. How long did you say you've been rapping again? Shit, I mean, I wrote my first rap at eight, but I guess I started taking it seriously when I was like 12, so a very long time, I said laughing. Yeah, I can tell you came up in the lyrical era of hip-hop for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Kane, Rakim, Public Enemy, BDP. The way you ride beats, man, I'm a classically trained musician, and I can tell you have a really great ear for music. Oh, yeah? Thanks, man. You want to know how I know? How? You said you're from the South, right? He said. I had no idea where he was going with this. Your speaking voice doesn't have a hint of a Southern accent. Honestly, you sound like a New Yorker to me. I didn't know if he was saying it like it was a negative, but I knew that in some ways it was, so I explained myself. Well, I mean, my parents and siblings are all from New York, so they never really let me get particularly Southern. Like, if I talk long enough, you'll hear it. Or if I'm drunk, you'll hear it. Yeah, well, I can't hear it, James said, sounding positive and upbeat. That shows you have a great ear, because you can pick up accents quickly. It'll probably hurt you in the end, though, he said nonchalantly. Why do you say that? Well, you know, the South is very popular right now. But if you're from the South and sound like you're from New York, it'll be tricky for the labels. I know. I've been trying to explore my Southern side a little bit more on mixtapes and stuff. Yeah, that's what I'd recommend. Play up the accent. Make sure you say North Carolina in every song. The key is to let the listener know exactly what you're all about. Tell them what you want them to know. I told them I understood. Besides, man, rap sucks these days. It's all about the young Southern guys with their uneducated lyrics and simple beats. Your stuff is way, way better than that. But that may be a bad thing for you. A&Rs just want the same crap over and over again. They're never looking to take a chance on anyone. So I've heard, I said. Yeah, it's a real shame. Guys like you have been working hard for years. I meet them all the time. But the goddamn music has gotten so bad that though you've mastered making good rap songs, you've technically regressed regarding what's popular. You know what I mean? Yeah, unfortunately I do. Once the conversation was over, Rue got James's number and told him that maybe we'd record at his studio. Yeah, I'd love to have you guys, James replied as we said our goodbyes and headed back to Brooklyn. The Heinekens were starting to wear off and James's words began to set in fully. I don't know why it took them so seriously, but on that exact night, at that exact time, they made perfect sense to me. For the next few days, all I could think about was that conversation. I knew now that if I were really going to make a huge push, then everything would have to be different, intensified. No more one foot in and one foot out. I needed to become a Southern rapper and stop caring about whether or not the true heads would still regard me as a dope lyricist. 
To get the attention of these labels, I'd need to go all out and make songs that sounded a little bit more run-of-the-mill and obvious. I'd have to make different songs, southern songs. I just didn't know if I had it in me. I'd spent so many years altering the way I'd made and thought about making music solely to fit the mold. But I always did what I could to keep a small piece of myself in my music so that I wouldn't get totally lost. I was almost 30 and rap was a young man's game. So it was time to pony up. Either I ripped the band-aid off and quit or make a conscious effort to record songs that sounded like what was popular. No more games. While my mind fixated on heeding James's advice, Rue had another mission. He had begun managing a talented young producer named Gifted that we had been working with for about a year. If Rue could sell a few of the beats, we could do it under the Jimmy Joshua umbrella and get our company's names on albums. In other words, any song he produced would be listed as Produced by Gifted for Jimmy Joshua Lifestyle. And if he could get in good with James, we could take advantage of some of his connections. Getting placement would also mean an income stream for Rue, free beats for me, and work for the young man whose career we were trying to help establish. It was a win-win for everyone. Rue began speaking to James frequently. His goal was to establish a relationship with him that could benefit all of us. The short-term goal was to get him a beat CD so he could help us get it in the right hands. But the real mission was to get us a free recording session so that he could see me work, become a fan, and help us get to the right people. It seemed totally logical, but more importantly, it seemed doable. And for at least a few weeks, I found my mojo. I was hoping that maybe what I had been feeling was just a test. Perhaps now that I was able to power through, I'd see positive results, but it was yet to be determined. I had already convinced James that I was good, so now I needed to show him that I had taken his advice. I had written a song called I Told You to one of Gifted's beats and booked studio time to record it. But on the subway ride to the studio, I began thinking about how I hadn't written the song with a southern accent, and perhaps recording it was a bad idea. I had found glimpses of confidence, but I hadn't fully healed, and my stress management skills were essentially non-existent. My mind got frantic, and I became incredibly anxious. I did the song in my head, and though it sounded totally ridiculous with a forced accent, I convinced myself that I had to do it. I knew it felt wrong. If there was one constant with my recording process, it was that by the time I got to the studio, it would be quick. I'd memorize everything and know exactly how I'd deliver the vocals, background vocals, ad-libs, even where I wanted certain effects or where the beat would change. It was incredibly rare that I'd ever do more than one or two takes, and if I did, it was just for comparison's sake. But this session was taking a little bit longer because, again, I had altered the process. The beat was slow and calm, and me using a southern accent just sounded absurdly exaggerated. I felt like my gut was screaming at me. Josh, stop, man. This is insanity. You sound nuts. Stuart regular. But I tried to ignore it. After ten painful minutes and at least seven or eight takes, Rue began to notice, and so did Charlie, the engineer. Yo, I heard Rue say over the headphones. What's up? I said. Everything cool in there? He asked. Yeah, man. Trying to get it together. Just take your time, Rue said. Rue and I had never discussed my recording with an accent, but he could tell what I was doing because of my obsession with the conversation with James. For days, I had been stressing and overanalyzing what we had spoken about and eventually had to get Rue's advice. Though he never pressured me to sound more Southern, he too felt like James had a point and that it was something I may want to consider going forward. I had done it on mixtapes, so why not do it on a few songs to see if it helps the situation out? But this song wasn't written for that, and everyone could tell. After a few more frustrating takes, Rue's voice came over my headphones again. Yo, hold on for a second. I'm coming in there. He walked into the recording booth where he found me looking somber and unenthused. What's up, man? What's wrong? He asked. 
I turned the microphone switch to off as not to broadcast our conversation to Charlie. I know what you're trying to do, Ruth said with a slight grin. I know you do, and it ain't working, I said. Did you write the song like that? He said. No, I had the song written way before we met with James, and now I feel like I have to do it with a southern accent. It's fucking the whole feeling of the song up. So don't do it like that. Do it the normal way, Ruth said. But I feel like I have to start making my shit more southern now, I said. Okay, so do that on the next one. But it's clear this isn't the right vibe. I thanked him for his support. I knew what was right. I guess I just needed someone else to co-sign my intuition. Once I took Rue's advice, I proceeded to knock out the song in one take. It sounded as good as I had envisioned it, and I felt confident about my delivery. But I couldn't pretend like the creation process wasn't tarnished. The chorus of the song was meant for a female singer, so until I locked one in, I laid reference tracks in a ridiculous falsetto. And though I had a particular singer in mind, I never contacted her. I left the studio feeling torn. On the one hand, I liked the song, but I felt like I was painting a picture and accidentally vomited in my paint. Though the nearly finished product shows no signs of ever being tampered with, the vibe surrounding the creation of the song was blemished. As good of a song as it could have been, morally, I couldn't finish I Told You. It was ruined, and now, it was dead. The next week, I chose to leave my unfortunate studio session behind and write some songs that were better suited for a southern delivery. I wrote a record called Heavy, which was still very much a what's-his-name song, but the beat allowed me to delve further into my newfound drawl. Excited to record something new, I called Melvin and scheduled recording time with him one evening after work. Still dressed in my work clothes, I traveled to his house in Jamaica, Queens, where his makeshift studio was set up. I don't know why I didn't bring a change of clothes, but my lack of attention to details had me feeling less than rapper-like. As I stood behind a curtain he had hung on a tension rod near the window, I rolled up my sleeves, hoping that I could imagine that I was dressed differently. Let's do the chorus first, Melvin said to me from behind his small mixing console. I'ma start from two bars early, so just wait for two, then come in. I said okay, and then the beat began. Hey yo, hey yo, I live with a heavy rep, out for the heavy cake. Girl, show me heavy love, I'm built like a heavy weight. I'm built, built like a heavy weight. I'm built, built like a heavy weight. The music stopped. You'll start again from the top, Melvin said as the music started again. Okay. Yo. Yo, hey yo, I live with a heavy rep, out for the heavy cake. Girl, show me heavy love, I'm built like a heavy weight. I'm built, built like a heavy weight. I'm built, built like... The music stopped again. One more time, Melvin said before pressing play on the track. Okay. Yo, yo, hey yo, I live with a heavy rep, out for the heavy cake. Girl, Josh, Melvin said. Yo, what are you doing, man? What do you mean? I said, what's with your delivery? He said, what's wrong with it? What, you got a country accent now? Melvin asked. I'm just trying something different. It fits the song. Okay, if you say so. The client's always right, Melvin said, laughing sarcastically. He acted normal through the session, but he didn't need to say anything else. I knew it was unnatural. We powered through the recording process, and I finished heavy pretty fast. It was decent, and I was happy to have song one of what would be my new sound. Rue liked it, and after we listened to it about 10 times, we drank beer and celebrated my induction into the Southern Rapper Hall of Shame. After our first date, I began seeing Monica a few times a week, and eventually our dates turned into sleepovers. Every time I saw her, I felt like I transported into an alternate universe where the stress of my real life didn't exist. 
With music, all I knew was failure, but this was actually going pretty well. I enjoyed being around her, and frankly, I hadn't enjoyed much of anything in recent years. Her presence made me feel positive, and her free-spirited personality was a good influence on me. I was tightly wound and calculated, and too much of that starts to eat away at you. Monica exuded a confidence about her personality and celebrated all of her beautiful inconsistencies. It made me think a lot about my own struggles and why I'd let so many things bother me so much. As a rapper, I was forced to calculate and consider everything I did and said, but with her, it was just me, unfiltered. Without a single word of advice from her, I felt like I was becoming more in touch with my true self and began to accept my flaws and dualities. Eventually, I found the confidence to shave my head and rid myself of the one physical attribute that affected my self-esteem. My hair was thinning to a point where I could barely hide it, and I was convinced that it was hindering me from getting signed. It would have taken me a year of analysis to decide whether I'd look cool enough with a shaved head before I would have ever considered it. But when I laid out all the stress my receding hairline caused me, she said, why don't you just shave your head? It was just that simple. My confidence was growing, but not as a rapper, as a man. I continued to write Southern Influence records like Showing Off and Club With Me that included the quintessential chopped and screwed chorus. I was competing with the big boys now and Houston, where chopping and screwing was born, was where the big boys lived. It was contrived and it was obvious, but that, in essence, was the point. I had learned to be a strategist, but I was still an artist and a b-boy. I wrote songs like A Part of Me and It'll Work to remind myself that I was still a lyrical monster. My audio resume, though mostly strategized, had become disjointed and lacked cohesion, but my newfound, real-life confidence drove me to create more freely. Rue loved everything I recorded, so I kept going on instinct. On a trip home to Durham, I heard a song called Lollipop. It was an up-tempo R&B snap record by Fantasia Barino's brother Rico that was gaining popularity on the radio. I had met Rico at 102 Jams once while doing an on-air interview with my friend DJ J Flex. He was cordial, though mid-interview he took a bit of a jab at the way I conducted myself. I was on the radio, speaking with a friend. My confidence was high at the time and his comment was in the same vein as most of the hate I'd received in North Carolina my whole life, so I brushed it off. Sort of. I mean, Taurus has never really brushed anything off, but I chose not to focus on it, though clearly I never forgot. I decided to do an unauthorized remix of Lollipop and added my verse to the beginning of the song. If there was ever a time when I felt like I delivered on something that made me sound like I deserved to be on, it was then. I stayed with Rico's theme of candy and female body parts and rapped even more Southern than I ever had before. Jay Flex liked it so much that he replaced the original version permanently, and now Southern What's-His-Name was being heard over the airwaves of the biggest hip-hop and R&B station in North Carolina. Around the same time, I was asked to do a verse on a remix of a song called Sausage, which was put together by my friend, fellow rapper, producer, and radio personality Showdown. Like Lollipop, the original was getting a little airplay on 102 Jams, where Showdown worked, and I was honored to be a part of it. Inspired by the newlywed-like elation that was running through my body, I wrote a sexually charged verse that was at least as southern as everything else I had been working on. I invited Monica to meet me at the studio to watch me record before we went out to dinner. I never considered that this would bother Rue because if anything, she brought me good vibes and confidence, two things we valued when recording. Apparently, I was wrong. Yo, what's she doing here? Rue asked me in the hallway. Watching me record, what you mean? I said laughing. I thought you said we would never have anyone here but us when you record. I said that? I asked. Yeah, you said all we need is us in the studio, Rue said. 
Well, yeah, I said that. But maybe you interpreted it a little differently than what I meant, I said. Nah, I know what you meant, but whatever. It is what it is. Dude, you're taking this a little too seriously. It's a stupid verse on a remix, not a full-fledged song. Whatever, man, Bruce said. Let's just get it done. I felt like Monica's presence in the studio wasn't the real problem. It seemed like it was Monica's presence in my life. I had been hanging out with Rue nearly every day for the past four years, and he was almost always dating someone, even if he didn't claim them. I was the miserable, wannabe rapper who spent weekends home alone with nothing to look forward to. I was the uber, single-by-choice curmudgeon who only came out of his hole to go to work, record music, and hang out at Rue's apartment upstairs. I hadn't had a serious girlfriend in a long time, and just as soon as I did, he seemed bothered that it was taking away from our social time. In his mind, he probably thought I'd lose focus on my music. In my mind, my focus on music meant borderline depression. I was growing as a person and as a man. I was in love, and it felt good. I had deprived myself of any real pleasure for a long time and did everything I was supposed to do on my end to make it. But now, I was enjoying being a human first and not a machine whose software had to be updated every few months based on the latest trend in how to get a record deal. Rue and I weren't hanging out as much, but I expected him to see that it was all for the greater good of Josh as a human being. I just wasn't sure that he did. 